A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to Now Where Were We? Bob Cryer here. Over lockdown, I asked my father what he was finding hardest. He told me the thing he missed most was being able to head down to the pub and have a laugh with his friends. And once you know that my dad is Barry Cryer, the man who never met an anecdote he didn't like, and of whom Andy Hamilton once said that his anecdotes hunt in packs, you'll understand that it's been harder for him than most. So as soon as things calmed down a bit, I booked a table at the Green Man Pub in London and invited some of his friends that dad hadn't seen for ages for a pint and a proper catch-up. And that's what you're about to hear on this podcast. Dad can't quite get his head round what a podcast is. I told him it's basically like radio, but with less pay. He was amazed. He couldn't believe that anything existed that paid less than radio. So to kick things off, we popped down to the pub with national treasure, beloved actor, famed raconteur, and one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, Stephen Fry. And as you're about to hear, we kick things off by discussing the art of telling stories. I've always loved that part of acting where you're hanging around in a dressing room or comedy and, you know, doing a stage show and you're with uh, your, your pals and, and you tell stories. It's a binding, uh, a wonderfully binding experience. It's also a fantastic way of remembering people. You know, actors tell stories about uh, Wilfred Lawson and Willoughby Goddard and all these extraordinary figures who are almost completely forgotten. And and yet by telling the stories, they, they become part of law, law with an R, in, 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 the, in the business. And they make us feel that we're in a in a profession that has a history and... And, and it keeps and, their memory alive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and celebrates Barry is them. a genius at that. Because uh, 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 he... Barry who? Because <laughs> <laughs> you're old enough to remember people whom I never knew who, who were extraordinary, um, particularly going back before yeah. TV variety, like Roy Hudd into the world of uh, musical. Yes, yeah. And I'd always refer people to Roy Hudd because... People often ask me about the old days of variety and musical, and I would hand them over to Roy yeah. and said, "There's the authority. He was the he was the, man. the, the Wikipedia of, yeah, of musical." Yeah, yeah. But we were talking in the car on the way here about the famous comment about Mike and Bernie Winters at the Glasgow Empire. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> oh fuck! There's two of them. Yeah, which I saw on That's Twitter. The decent the, version. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and this is a great unusable Victor Seafort, an impressionist. Brilliant man, but he used to do a very dramatic uh, impression of the Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, with dramatic lighting and music. And he walked on, the music played and everything, and a voice said, Away him, you hummity back cunt! <laughs> Before he'd done anything. <laughs> it was like the great... You can use that. <laughs> the, you, know the, you know the Bono, the Bono heckle. Oh, oh yes. the clapping. Yes. Yeah, well, he's clicking. clicking. Every time I click my finger, someone in the third world dies. Well, stop clicking, you <laughs> sick god. It's so logical. <laughs> Pick the names up as they sud. He was over here. He was a lovely guy when you met him. Gene Kelly, and they showed him Eric and Ernie's Singing in the Rain. He'd never seen it. 
They'd asked me to speak. Tommy Steele had been asked to speak because he was doing singing in the rain at the Palladium and they were all pissy in the water tank. Allegedly. So he pulled out and I was the last minute replacement. And uh, then I spoke and I said to Gene Kelly, you inspired me. Uh, I said, I've, uh, I'm working on a new big musical, an underwater version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, ringing in the Seine. <laughs> He looked at me blankly, as did the audience. <laughs> Those moments. Americans are very weak on wordplay. They they either hate it or they just don't really. Yeah. See but the, the audience point didn't get it either. No, Stephen. oh, it was a British audience, and they didn't get yes. it. Yes. Oh dear. Oh. <laughs> oh, here we go. We've just lost uh, Tom O'Connor quite recently. It was yeah. great. Failure's funny when you swap stories. Success isn't funny. No. I told him up last night. Oh, really? How interesting. We all swap stories about how we died and everything. And Tom told the story. It was really going downhill. The jokes weren't working. And he told one joke, and it didn't get a laugh. But at the back of the room, he heard... He said, thank you, sir. And the man said, I was smacking the sauce bottle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. There is, I, I don't know if YouTube is cruel enough to keep it on there because there are all kinds of things to be found, of course, on, on, on the internet that many people would have assumed had died. But Dickie Henderson, do you remember him? Oh, God. Who was, yes. for some reason that I never understood, called Dickie Mr. TV Henderson. <laughs> so, so frankly. But um, he was on Parkinson and he was sitting there and, and the other guest was Bob Hope. And Dickie Henderson started a joke and lost the punchline and just got it completely wrong and said, oh, dear, I, I got that wrong. And Bob Hope looked at him, Michael Parkinson looked at him, and, and it, it was just, I mean, I, really, you'd have nightmares for the rest of your life, mistiming, misfiring a joke yeah. next to Bob Hope, one of the absolute masters of it. Well, yeah, story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> it's the dinner table. Yeah. Mentioning... Uh, Parky, because yeah. that's actually the conversation that started this podcast was the idea that that used to be the time. Um, and I remember it in the, the late 70s and early 80s when that was the only opportunity you got to reach into a star's life. And they would tell these things called anecdotes. Mm. And now, of course, everything is documented. Every mm. aspect of someone's life is documented. And we live in a world of banter often as a regard, as a, opposed to anecdotes. And, but Parky, Going back to some of those YouTube clips and watching David Niven and Ustinov and Bette Davis and people like that, I'm not saying it's a lost art, but it's something that it's I less think, special. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really was an extraordinarily special moment to think that Peter Sellers was going to be on Parkinson and yeah, you know, he'd yeah. tell the story of how he met the prototype for Blue Bottle from the Goons, or he'd go into a series of yes. accents and things like that. And it was it was such a treat. One would hug oneself for four days thinking Parkinson's coming up. Yeah. And he would have on these remarkable figures whom, as you say, you had no other chance to see. Everything is very demystified now. You're just on to plug something yeah. now if you're on a chat show. It's true. Parky had real conversations. Yeah. With the most amazing people. He did two separate shows subsequently with his son uh, producing it and everything. One was the musicians, you know, like Duke Ellington, Fats Wall, the people he'd interviewed. And the other was just the big stars, Betty Davis and so on. It was just a one-off, Parky. It was just amazing. Yeah. 
I mean, and of course, it, we're bound to think this because of the generation we are, but there was a luster about the idea of James Cagney being oh, on yes. a chat show that you will never get from seeing Tom Cruise. Although Tom Cruise it. is a huge star, and it's not to take anything away from him, there is none of that extraordinary... Uh, That's James Cagney. Cagney. You yeah. can't believe what you were seeing. Yes, belongs to some utterly alien and fabulous world that you literally look up to because you're in the lower seat looking yeah. up at a screen. But you know, James just Cagney was a song and dance man, yeah. wasn't yeah. he? fabulous. Who and he was yeah. cast in this film originally. And they, they cross-cast it in the finish. They thought, oh, no, Cagney could play the baddie in this with his face and voice. He wasn't cast in it initially. And that, of course, typecast him for quite a while. Yes, and then he's, he's surprised a lot of people who didn't know of his roots in song and dance when he, he won his only Oscar for, for playing George M. Cohan yes. in Yankee Doodle Dandy. He was back in his element there. Yeah, and, and do you remember the table tap dance scene in yes. Eddie and the Seven Little Foys, the, yeah. the, the Bob Hope movie? It's a fantastic... So we could talk about the golden age of Hollywood forever. But. Well, you can talk about Bob Hope. I mean, you've, if you're yeah. saying yeah. that the pressure of a punchline for Dickie Henderson, I mean, the pressure for Bob Hope is one thing that you witnessed well, at first hand. Pick it up. You heard the sud. I was sat with Bob Hope. <laughs> the Parkinson, John Junkin and I had written the hundredth version of Thanks for the Memory for him. And he trusted us because he had topical references in and everything. Right, John, just so the audience knows, yeah. that was his signature song. Yeah. It has a chorus, Thanks for the Memory. And then in the verses, you can put in you can new lines of things that are... But John yeah. couldn't come that night for whatever reason. I'm sitting with the great Bob Hope who hasn't yet met Parkinson. Yeah. I said, what's this guy Parkinson like? I said, he'll interview you from a kneeling position. <laughs> and then he came out to me. It was fascinating. He said, the generation back in the States don't like me. Friend of the president, friend of the president. This man, he risked his life in the Second World War going around entertaining the troops and everything. But he said, OK, I've met every president. But he said... The current generation, Don, yeah. coming out to me with all this it's stuff. It's the equivalent That's of the Olivier strange, story of, of, of the, the man who went into his dressing room and there he is with his head in his hands mm. after a brilliant performance as Coriolanus or Oedipus or... or Actually, or Othello, with Frank Finley. Is that, yeah, is that Frank the story? Frank Finley played Iago. There was one particular night where Olivier was so astonishing <clears throat> and his Othello... Obviously now not an acceptable thing at all because he blacked up and he, you know, uh, he lowered his voice by an octave. And But at the time, different times, different morals and so on, at the time it was somehow acceptable. And, and indeed it was hugely admired as a great performance. And this particular night was, as sometimes happens, just extra remarkable. And the whole cast applauded and applauded and the audience were on their feet for a lot of a lot of curtain calls and then he stormed off and went to his dressing room slamming the door behind him and frank finley was deputed to go and see why he and he knocked on the door go away I said but but it's frank can i just tell you 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 were so extraordinary tonight i mean really incredible don't you know that? He said, of course I know. But I don't fucking know why. <laughs> you know, that's the point, isn't it? You yeah. know, it's, it's slightly similar to sport. You can have a batsman whose technique is absolutely perfect. They rehearse in the nets and practice and practice. But they can lose form yeah. and, and they can't control it. It's something inside. And with an actor or a comedian, there are days when your mouth seems to turn to cloth and it doesn't yeah. come out right. There's and a transformation and, in yeah, the opposite direction. In yeah. the opposite yeah. direction. And so, you, I mean, technique is enough to see you through and 
give the performance you're supposed to give, but but you want always to find that extra something yeah. that you can't control. Tony Hopkins told me a, a, a wonderful... Anthony Hopkins um, understudied Olivier at the Old Vic, and uh, there was a... Two, two two stories which were extraordinary. One was um, Anthony was having a, a rehearsal on stage, an understudy rehearsal, and Olivia came in and, and crossed through the auditorium looking at the stage. Now, it's very bad form for the actor who has the role to look at their understudy. It puts them off horribly, and they feel so self-conscious. And you know, it's very hard. And anyway, then Olivier summoned Tony to his dressing room. And uh, said, uh, just a word of advice, Tony. He said, don't be afraid to imitate. And Tony, his Welsh fury was about to come up, thinking, yeah, that's an arrogant thing to say. And then, but Olivier made it perfect by saying, take my performance, pure Harry Worth. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Worth! Oh. <laughs> of all people. And funny enough, when you see those later roles in movies of, of Olivier with a trilby and a raincoat, yes. he does look like Harry Worth. <laughs> when I was, you wonder where the old man's going now. I was writing the uh, nightclub shows for Danny LaRue, who was a big star in those days, yeah. with his own club in Hanover Square. Oh, yeah. Olivia was doing uh, Othello, as we say, and uh, I would pick up on anything happening topical. Ronnie Corbett and Danny LaRue was Othello and Desdemona. And uh, we were making fun uh, of Olivia doing it at the National at the time. And apparently he heard about this and was amused, but never turned up at the club to see it. But subsequently, he and Ronnie met at a do and arranged to meet up. He was running the National Theatre then, uh, in a pub near the National Theatre, and their wives would join them for dinner. And Ronnie told me, he said, off stage, Olivia wasn't as tall as she thought he was, grey hair, glasses, looked like a bank manager or something. I'm sitting in this pub in a booth with Laurence Olivia having a drink. And a man came in to the pub and went, Oh, Ronnie! and came over and said to Olivia, move your ass, give us your autograph, Ron. And Ron thought this is not the split second to say anything, so he just gave the man an autograph, and the man went away. And Olivia said, we must know our place. Oh, <laughs> how fabulous. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. There's a <clears throat> Danny story. Do you know uh, um, <laughs> Ned Sherin used to tell it? Ned Sherin was directing a, a charity show of some kind, and Danny was in it, um, and so was Barbara Windsor. Um, and D D Danny had a, a, a big costume change, a big frock change. So he said to Barb, he said, can you add another verse to your song, darling? He said, I've got huge frock change um, and in the rehearsal. And, and Barbara said, OK. And so Barbara went on and did her song and added the verse. And then in the wings, there was Danny already fully in his frock, tutting and looking at his watch and going, get on with it, get on with it. And she was really upset. And Ned was passing at the end of the show, was passing in the corridor, and Barbara's husband, Ronnie Knight, yes. the East End gangster yes. and friend of the craze, was in there. So, why are you crying, doll? She said, well, it's, um, well, it's, it's Danny. Um, he was cruel to me. And Ronnie said, right, and he disappeared. And Ned leapt in and said, um, darling, said, you mustn't worry about Danny. He's, um, he, he's, 
he, he's got sides to him. He's like a Neapolitan ice cream, you know. There's a slice that's the perfect <laughs> professional, a slice that's the warm, loving friend, and there's a slice that's a bitchy old queen. And, you know, you just get one slice or another. You go, oh, I see. And then she said, excuse me. And she ran off down the corridor to catch up with Ron. And she <laughs> Ned her to say, Ron, Ron, you mustn't attack Danny. Ned says he's just like a Neapolitan ice cream. <laughs> That would have solved it. Oh, well, in that case. I didn't realise. Oh, Dan was amazing. We we did the show one night. He was a lovely host and everything, and he's giving this woman a drink, and she said, Oh, Daddy, do you like dressing up as a lady? <laughs> yes, dear, do you? <laughs> he always had the line. He didn't, like the, term, he didn't like the term drag. No, he didn't. Female impersonator. Drag, yeah. And he came out of the Navy, I think. I was wandering around a bookshop, Charing Cross Road, and I saw a book called Drag by a man called Kenneth Baker, I think it was. Oh, I bought it. And we were rehearsing a show. And uh, Danny hadn't arrived yet. And the Tony Palmer and the gang, I said, look at this, uh, this book called Drag. And there was a, a group photograph of young guys in, I think Dan did some service in the Navy or something, and then was in a, a, a drag show, servicemen and everything, and there was a photograph. And we went, oh, boy. And then Danny arrived with his dog, which has nothing to do with his story. And he said, oh, what's that? I said, look at this photograph, Dad. Oh, yes, yes, good gracious me. Long pause. I said, do you notice anybody? No, no. Tony Palmer said, come on, Dan, who's that? No, no. He wouldn't. He wouldn't Never owned up to him. That was him in the photograph. We never knew why. I remember it was one one of the greater jokes on on um, around the horn was uh, Julian and Sandy. <laughs> there was one set in Paris, and said so we were trolling along the Rue de la Danny. That's <laughs> that's the main drag. <laughs> and there was a singer called Danny Street. Oh, that's right. There was, wasn't and it? And yeah. Dan's name, Daniel Patrick Carroll. Soho Irish, yeah. and in his early days, he got a job, Cecil Lander, I think was the man, little theatre off Leicester Square, and uh, he saw the, this poster, Danny LaRue. He thought, who's that? Cecil Lander had given him a stage name. Wow. Daniel, uh, Carol, too big for the yeah. poster. Yeah. And he said, well, and then I think he took it on legally later on, the name, yeah. but uh, he didn't like the name, but he that's used it. Yeah. But it's fascinating to think of him in the Navy there, and I think that's one thing you could say about comedy generally, is that for the 100 and 200 years of, of music hall and theatrical comedy and end-of-the-peer comedy, and then radio comedy and early comedy in the 60s and 70s, they all came out of a hierarchical society. And that if you were in the army or you were at school or at university or you worked in a factory where there were bosses, you cluster together and you mock your bosses and yes. you find a common cause. You, you're part of a world and you burst out of it. And we now live not in a hierarchical society, but really a sort of networked society. Yeah. No one's a, a boss. In, in firms, you don't have bosses. You have team leaders and oh. everything's a team and everyone's nice to each other. And that's good. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it does mean comedy has less to get its teeth into. 
It's, there isn't a structure there that you could have a go at. Exactly, that's the point, isn't it? They always used to talk about the end of the age of deference, didn't yeah. they? The end of the 60s. That's and, right. And, uh, cabaret ties in neatly with that because, of course, Peter Cook called his club the establishment the, exactly. for just that reason. Exactly. I think that's why the show I was involved in, Blackadder, was successful, was because uh, every week Blackadder might lose his head or die in the yes. trenches. Yes. There was, you know, something... It, really at risk and at stake, which there used to be. Even in Terry and June, there's Sir Dennis the boss. I know it's <laughs> ridiculous, but there was a boss. You know what I mean? Stepped on, son. Desperate to break out and get into, you know, better life. Stop with my dad. What is all this about? It's quite What does that become about success and failure being well, the... Well, it's interesting. If you were to list the great types of British sitcoms for the first... 30 or 40 years of them, they're all men with a, a desire to be something grander yes. than they are and almost a fantasizing sense of themselves. Anthony Aloysius Hancock, you know, That's right. he gives himself grandeur that frustrates And his friends yeah. pull him down to the reality of his yeah. incredibly bleak life. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I remember when I first sort of met John Cleese and, and you know, you can't help saying at some point how brilliant you think Faulty Towers is and how much I loved Python when I was a boy and everything. And, and when I said, you know, I can't believe how great those Basil Faulty scripts are, they're just not only the comedy, but the, the, the fast plotting is so beautiful. And he said, um, he said, well, that's very kind of you. He said, but I... I think it's fair to say that no one has ever worked that hard on a sitcom. He said, um, by about the fourth draft, it might have made a reasonable ITV sitcom. By the <laughs> ninth or tenth draft, the BBC One might have been interested. But it was really the 16th draft that made me feel it was ready for BBC Two. I mean, it's probably an exaggeration, but not much of a one. He really, you know, was... And, and then when he, I heard that he was um, doing this Fish Called Wanda film, and he said, well, yes, I started off writing three-minute sketches with Graham Chapman. Uh, then I used to do these sort of little training films uh, for industry. They were 20, oh, yes. 20 minutes, you know. And then I went to half an hour for sitcoms, and now I'm trying an hour and a half for a movie. And I thought, blimey, that's a very logical way to proceed in a career, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know? David Frost, who I call the practising catalyst, <laughs> he was brilliant with yeah, people. He was, he was. And he noticed uh, there was a whole gang of us working for him. 
he noticed that Graham Chapman and I had become mates and put us together as writers. But Graham had been writing with John Cleese. Yes. And John used to say, are you being unfaithful to me with Baz? <laughs> but Frost was amazing. Graham Chapman and I uh, putting us together as writers. And we wrote quite a lot together. Yeah. And uh, it was a... It was a joy. That, and he put, group, the, he put the Ronnies together. Yeah, that group yeah. that he assembled, there's a photograph at home of um, Marty Feldman and Barry Took. There are the, the, the goodies, the pythons, practically all of them, yourself. Um, Dick Vosborough yes. is oh, in there. Oh, boy. Extraordinary. Yeah, there, there were, I mean, Peter uh, Cook was famously mean about David Frost. And, uh, you know, D David was not the most talented comedian himself. Oh, no. But no, my goodness, should. as you say, he was, a, he was a real kingmaker and a remarkable figure. Peter's I, great I was very fond of him. saving him from drowning. That's right. Yeah. That was the famous story. Which was told at the memorial. Actually. Yeah. There was one as well uh, years and years ago, as uh, you can tell how old it must be when I say it, is David called up Peter and said, Peter, um, I'm giving a dinner for, for um, Prince Andrew and his bride-to-be, uh, Ferguson, Sarah Ferguson, they're huge fans of yours, love to meet you. And Peter said, I'll just look and get my diary. What, uh, what date is it? And they said, it's, it's Wednesday week. Uh, and Peter, with the sound of pages turning, said, oh, no, I find I'm watching television that night. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. You're the Oxfam of comedy. He's feeding me now, Stephen. <laughs> Ronnie Corbett, of course, owed a lot, always said to David, Frost and everything. And David rang him uh, once and said, uh, week on Sunday, Ronnie, I've got this so-and-so, so-and-so. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't do it, David. Uh, what, you've got, you've got another job, another show? No, no. You're playing golf? No, no, no. What are you doing then that Sunday? Oh, I'll have my feet up at home. I'm relaxing, David. So Frost tries a bit of blackmail and says... I haven't exactly been a hindrance to your career, Ronnie, have I? He said, no, you haven't, uh, David. You've elevated me to a position from which I'm now speaking to you. <laughs> oh, 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 wow. <laughs> and Frost, to his credit, used to tell that story. No, yeah, he was good like that, and he really... <laughs> he, he never forgot my phone number. Years would go by, and he'd pop into me and go, four <laughs> and your, your, your mother, my grandmother, uh, uh, Nana, uh, he, he was rather twinkly with her, or she twinkled with him. Oh. Yes. Because he was, he was rather charming, worked a room very well. Oh, he did. I remember doing his show, um, his breakfast show that he used to do on Sundays. Remember the Sunday morning show? Uh, and, you know, you get up very early and you go over, and my job was to look through the newspapers and find a few stories to share with him. And So I'm sitting on the sofa with the newspapers, um, and I've finished my bit and they throw, in the jargon, to Moira Stewart, the newsreader at the desk round the corner, and I stand up to get demiked, and I'm still a bit woozy, and I can hear someone else is coming in to be miked, who's the next guest. And then David says the immortal words, Boutros, Boutros, always a pleasure. <laughs> Just so perfect. <laughs> and I remember, I remember being invited to one of those American ambassadors that have these garden parties in Regent's Park where there's a residence for the American ambassador. And I was very, uh, on July the 4th, they, they have a party and I was invited to one. I was very happy to be there. And... Um, 
and I was talking to David with a drink, and the ambassador walked past with the with um, uh, was it Chirac, Jean Chirac, I think, the president of France, and. <laughs> As they were going past, David threw out an arm and just said, Beloveds. Ah, <laughs> oh, so extraordinary. You were doing two series at once at one stage, yes. living on Concord. He was, yeah. He was an amazing character in those days, and he had an open-top convertible car, I remember. And uh, they said at the time, if it started raining, David pressed a button on the dashboard and it stopped raining. <laughs> People don't... You know, he helped to bring down a president, for God's sake, interviewing Richard Nixon. Absolutely. People don't realise that the magnitude of this man at the time... And, and he, uh, he was one of the founders of London Weekend Television, which is yes. a whole new way of, of, of broadcasting, um, a franchise based yeah. on the day rather than the place. But uh, you touched on earlier, I'd, I'd, he would have owned up probably. He wasn't really the performer... Yeah. to match the others as a performer at Cambridge and everything. But Peter Cook told the story in their early days. They all crammed into a car and they were going to a theatre to do a show and on the poster it said, David Frost presents. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, what a nerve yeah. and yet... There was a lot of truth in that image. He was already organising. If he wasn't providing the the uh, uh, the environment, he was providing the energy. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, a great supporter of people. And, and Peter, you mentioned the the establishment club. Peter was obviously a, a huge figure in the sixties. He emerged because he was a comic genius, a perfectly extraordinary man to, to meet and oh, know. Oh God, he's yeah. quite, he's, I, I, I probably one of the most remarkable days I ever spent was in Egypt. We were um, the Cleeses had this fantastic holiday that we were all invited to where John and his wife both I think added up to a hundred on one day in the middle of this holiday their birthdays more or less you know and so it was to celebrate that and, and it was a cruise up the Nile and we we had a you know an Egyptologist on board who would give lectures and there was um, it's how I became friends with William Goldman the screen the screenwriter he was there we became incredibly good friends and there were Eric Idle was there all kinds of wonderful people and um <laughs> Peter was just extraordinary. I mean, for, I mean, there were so many occasions when he was remarkable. One was when we stopped off at Luxor and he, he, it was a Sunday and he went off and he found a whole load of English Sunday newspapers because he'd been missing them for about four days. And he came back. Everybody went off to look at a ruin and he and I stayed behind to go through the pages. And um, I saw there was this big story about Elizabeth Taylor who had put on rather a lot of weight and they were talking about it. And I said, oh, dear, look at Elizabeth Taylor. And he took it and said, oh, it says here that it's actually not her. It's her glands are the, of the fault. And uh, that is, of course, completely right. She'll be sitting there in her suite in the Inn on the Park, for example, on Park Lane, and watching the three o'clock race at Haydock. And her glands will pick up the phone and order a bottle of Courvoisier and a plate of eclairs. No, she screams, but it's too late. The order's gone through. And then she throws herself against the door, but the glands wrench her out of the way and stuff the eclairs down her face. Oh. And it was just... It was a lot, 10 minutes longer than that. I was heaving yeah. with laughter. I could barely stop. And I worked then... on the, <laughs> the Joan Rivers show. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, she wanted, uh, like the, the tradition on the chart shows in America, she wanted a sidekick, and somebody suggested Peter Cook, the great cook. 
booked at rather short notice for a lot of money, I think, but was then insulted. He did two or three minutes at the top of the show, sort of E.L. Westy sort of thing, which even with his talent was very difficult to work and was then relegated down to the end of the settee and greeted with questions like, you know, needed the answer, yes. It was really humiliating for Peter. And he got really angry about it and did a ring round one night. I got a phone call about one o'clock in the morning from him. What the fuck am I doing? Oh, it was really awful. So Bernard Manning had been booked. She'd never heard of Bernard Manning, but they thought he was a sort of English Don Rickles or something. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he didn't have a go at Joan Rivers, Manning, but uh, he looked down the line at Peter Cook on the settee and said, oh, saw you at the beginning of the show, Peter, very funny, and then turned away and pulled a terrible face of the camera. Rupert Everett was on the show and Bernard referred to him and said his brains were dynamite, wouldn't blow his bloody hat off. It, what a night that was. And the recording finished and Rupert went physically for Bernard Manning. Out of it. <laughs> I would like to have seen. <laughs> yeah. And Peter lolled back on the settee saying, hold me back, hold me back. <laughs> Quite a night that was. Oh, I'll tell you, also on that holiday, there was a day where you go to Abu Simbel, you know, which are those huge statues with their hands on their knees carved out of the rock in, in, in Egypt. And to do that, you have to get on a bus for an, hour or so and we, we went in the uh, early afternoon on this bus and the idea is you stay overnight and watch the sun strike these statues in the morning so we were sitting around a pool it was a sort of empty pool had a beach ball most people were just reading un, in, under the shade because it was very very hot in the desert of course but Peter was took the ball and I noticed he was doing something I couldn't quite work out what it was he was rolling the beach ball along the the paving, the coving along the, the the you know that marks the edge of the pool, and and there's a hoop where the steps that you climb up and into the pool are, and they and as he rolled it, one of them hit the side of the hoop and went through, and he muttered a stoddard five point, <laughs> and then he turned round and then rolled it the other way where there was another hoop at the other end, and it went clean through. He said an Abu Simnel. 15 points. And then he, and I said, Peter, what are you doing? He said, I'm playing the royal and not noticeably ancient game of Abu Simbel. And it was a game where you roll it through the hoop. I mean, it was in there, whereas if it goes into the pool, you get minus five and so on. Anyway, we started to play it. And then there were some Americans staying, and so we played uh, British against Americans. And then the staff, who were watching in amazement, asked if they could play. So we played guests against staff, and Eric Idle's wife, Tanya, went up to her room and found a vase, and that was the Abu Simbel Cup. And the staff won, and they were so pleased. They laid out this enormous barbecue for us, which we didn't have to pay for. (laughs) And then as the evening sun went down, Eric Idle played, you know... One foot in the grave and all this, you know, we'd look on the bright side of life. And it was simply the most perfect day. And it was made by that remarkable character of, of, of Peter Cook. And then when we got back, um, 
I persuaded him to buy a fax machine, uh, and he was very excited by having his fax, uh, who, whom he called uh, Fanny. And my fax machine, which was, uh, you know, it was made by Samsung, so was called Susan, I think. And he would fax me, dear, Fa- you know, dear Susan, this is Fanny. And he'd, <laughs> we'd just, we'd have, you know, days of messages back and forth as fax machines. He was, he just made life richer. There are people like yeah, that, aren't yeah. there? I mean, he was, a, of course, he was a terrible drunk, and it was sad that he killed himself with alcohol. Oh, There's no getting away from it. But, but he, he, you know, he he was just the most. It was restless, the restless invention yeah. of the mind. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Did you receive a late night phone call ever? Oh, a oh, lot, yes. yes. I mean, and all through the afternoon, because we both shared a love of minority sports. So if, <laughs> if there was indoor bowling, the phone would go, and I would I say, I bet this is Peter. And I'd pick it up and go, hello. And he'd go, uh, uh, yeah, Adrian's drawing very well to the head at the moment, isn't he? Though his backhand is not reliable. <laughs> you go into this technical stuff about indoor bowling. It was so blissful. These people are one-offs, aren't they? Yeah. You can't say somebody was a sort of Peter Cook. No, no there's, that's there's very one. good. Put. Very well put. Peter, I'm trying to think of when you worked with Peter Cook. Oh, did you work with Peter Cook on with Kenny ever? Oh, yes, uh, yes. Peter... No, Peter didn't do the Kenny Everett show. Uh, Spike Milligan. Spike Milligan did as uh, as Scrooge. Yes, I think. And uh, dear Everett was just amazing. He he didn't learn the lines, but he could do it straight away. Looking at autocue, Jeffrey Palmer told me this. He said, "I, "I thought he hasn't learned the lines," and he said on the first take, he said Kenny was brilliant reading autocue over my shoulder, but he knew every... Extraordinary. And, and Jeffrey thought, I've missed a boat here. I could have been doing this. <laughs> Spike really went for him. Ever I've been up all night learning my fucking lines. Remind me to send you an assassin for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the days with Everett were just... Uh, they don't show him now, of course, because there's so much incorrect. Um. Mary Whitehouse described the show as pornography... But it was more to do with hot gossip, the dancers, and our jokes, apparently. Yes. I was at a do once, and somebody said, Baz, have you met Mary Whitehouse? I said, no. And uh, I met Mary Whitehouse. And she said, hello, hello, hello. And I got hold of her hand far too firmly and said, I work on the Kenny Everett show. You made us. <laughs> Good for you. And she glazed over yeah. and shortly left. I, and I bet thought, she did. Oh, it was a plus is for it, us. Is it true the story I heard about uh, the BBC not noticing the spooneristic nature uh, yes. of, of Cupid's stunt and asking for it to be changed? Uh, yes. Kenny did the Parkinson show and appeared at the beginning as Cupid and then changed and came on later as himself. And Michael Parkinson said to me, Cupid stunt I've got to introduce. He said, boy, I've got to rehearse that. Get that wrong in front of the audience. <laughs> and we had another character called Mary Hinge. Well, that's, that's what I'd heard, that, that he changed it to Mary Hinge because the BBC said, you can't have Cupid stunt, that's, that's disgusting. And then, all right, we've changed it to Mary Hinge. Yes. <laughs> that's better. Yes. You see, you don't have to be disgusting, <laughs> do you? <laughs> oh, happy days, happy yeah. days. And as Mary Hinge gets her first airing since the 1980s, we've reached the end of part one of our chat with Stephen Fry. But we'll be back tomorrow with, you've guessed it, part two. I will warn you, there's a lot of name dropping in the next episode, so just pick them up as you go along. 
As a man once said to me, name dropping is the coward's way of turning a boring story about nothing into a boring story about someone. And you know who that man was? Yes, that's right, it was Frank Sinatra. So thank you for joining us here on Now Where Were We? If you've enjoyed it, please do leave us a review, subscribe and tell your friends. It really does make a difference. And we'll see you for our next episode tomorrow. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.